I am having so much fun <laughs> with my fish. I had no idea that fish had so much personality. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. This is Chris. Carol will be joining us in just a few minutes. So you don't get our usual chit-chat. I apologize. I'm sure we could uh, find a side conversation in the middle of this interview um, if you miss us, but that would be rude, so we probably won't do that. But I just want to remind everyone that the Sausage of Science is about what, how the sausage is made, or, or more appropriately, how the sausage of the science is made. And so we talk to fellow scientists, scholars in human biology, and so on and so forth about their work and find out how they did it, find out what the implications are, and try to do it in a way that makes it more digestible, easy to understand for whoever's listening. We want to know who you are, so send us a tweet, text me, subscribe, like, do all the things. Uh, in the meantime, We've got a special guest for you, as we do every week. This week, we're going to be talking to Lynette Sievert. We have not had Dr. Sievert on before, but we have recast a podcast that she was on way back in our first season, I think. She is an expert on uh, the bio uh, biocultural study of menopause. Uh, she is a professor at University of Massachusetts Amherst, the co-director of the Stress Research Group, part of the Center for Research on Families. She's a biological anthropologist whose research is focused on menopause, but also on symptom experience of menopause um, as, as two aspects of human variation. She's interested in the evolution of menopause, right? Because not all menopause appears unique to humans. And post-reproductive aging as a human trait. As an aging adult, I find that fascinating. As a family research scholar, she has studied three interconnected aspects of everyday life, marriage and family, religion and spiritual practice, and economic security in relation to symptom experience. She's conducted her work in Puebla, Mexico, Asuncion, Paraguay, as well as Hilo, Hawaii, and received funding from the National Science Foundation, Winter Grand Foundation for Anthropological Research, uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and from UMass Amherst itself. We have her on here today to talk about a brand new paper, um, an American Journal of Human Biology called Hand Grip Strength, Standing Balance, and Rapid Foot Tapping in Relation to the Menopausal Transition in Campeche, Mexico. So in just a second, she'll be on here, and Carol will be joining us shortly thereafter. And thanks for, for you all joining us now. Hey. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Thanks for joining me. Oh, yeah. Thank you for doing this. This is kind of exciting. <laughs> uh, we'll just jump into it then. And I know a little bit about you, but I want to I want to hear it on tape. Um, we always start off the show. Well, the show is called The Sausage of Science, and it's it's, it's a joke on how the sausage is made. And we want to know how the sausage of the science is made. The first ingredient in every sausage has got to be the scientists, right? And like what led them to anthropology? and then to the, the, the area of research. So how did you become an anthropologist? Where, where are you from? What, what sort of path did you follow? And how did you become the, the world expert on the biocultural anthropology of menopause? I started out as a nurse. So my background is actually, my undergrad degree was in nursing and Spanish. So when I graduated from college in Pennsylvania, 
I got it in my head that I wanted to um, speak Spanish either in Miami or San Antonio or Albuquerque. And Albuquerque seemed safest to me at that time. This is back in the early 80s. So I put everything I owned into a U-Haul van and I drove to Albuquerque and I got a, a job the next day because I could speak Spanish and worked as a nurse in a hospital. And after a while, I felt like we weren't providing the best care that we could provide. And I felt like it wasn't the medicine. I felt that we didn't know enough about culture. We were taking care of the Navajo, the Hopi, the Pueblo Indians, the Mexicans, the Mexican Americans. And so I started taking classes in anthropology at the University of New Mexico in order to be a better nurse. And then I took biological anthropology with Henry Harpending. It just opened my world because I could combine my interest in biology and Spanish and anthropology and bring it all together. And so that's when I shifted from nursing to anthropology. And then I needed a focus in the back, again, early 80s, the there were so many people studying menarche, and I thought, wow, menopause is so much more interesting because menarche, you're looking at, what, 9 to 15 is the age range, and menopause, you're looking at 42 to 58 as the age range, and menopause has all these symptoms, and some people have hot flashes, some people don't have hot flashes. I just thought it was a lot more complicated, and there weren't very many people doing it. And I thought, well, that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do menopause. And I've never gotten tired of it. And I'm going to retire at some point, And I, I still feel like I don't know very much at all. And you have a book on the topic and everything. So I was, and I was, yeah. I was just about to dash to the library right before so I could do yeah. even more reading. But I couldn't make it over there. So I'll have to, to zip yeah. over there afterward. Kara gets to brag on this all the time because so many people go through Michigan for their PhDs, but you and I had the same, went to the same program. So, so how did you end up at UAlbany? Well, after a while, I, I needed to come back to the Northeast, even though I liked Albuquerque and it was a good just two years of finding myself and growing up and all that. But I came back to the Northeast and I ended up nursing in Kingston Hospital. Mm, in New York? In New York. Oh, yeah. And then Albany was the closest program, so I just went there because it was the closest. And, you know, I cobbled together a committee of a demographer as my chair. The Tim? And, yeah, Tim mm -hmm. Gage. And uh, Steve Brown was my endocrinologist. He studied saltwater balance in salamanders. Hmm. So, that was, I mean, it was just the craziest committee. And... Uh, Dick Wilkinson, who studied skeletons, uh -huh. and Larry Shell, And so it was sort of a crazy committee. And, and I did finally get a woman, Carol Olson, uh -huh. uh, was on it. But nobody really was an expert at menopause uh -huh. at all. And so that's okay, because I learned a lot about menopause all by myself. That's funny, because that's kind of how my committee came together. And that's how I ended yeah. up in Albany, too. I was in... Uh... I was between Kingston and New Paltz, uh, living uh -huh. down there in, in, in Poughkeepsie at first and, and needed a nearby school with a PhD program in anthropology and cadged together a committee 
also featured Larry and uh, Tim was on my master's committee and stuff. So that's, that's funny how that, that turned out. Yeah, it was a good experience. It, um, it was a good program for me. It was a good program. Well, it says something, uh, you know, I don't want to, it's not, I guess it sounds like a humble brag if I say it this way, but uh, having to put together a committee and then still find your way when nobody is an expert on the topic that you're on says a lot about your capacity for developing research projects. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, I think, you know, there, I guess there are two ways to be a graduate student. One is to join ongoing projects and the other is just, just forge your own path and I think that there is an advantage to forging your own path because then whenever you get out and you're out in the real world, you, you, you've sort of done it before so you can do it again. Yeah. You know, it's funny. One of our producers, of course, Eric Griffith is one of your, your, your PhDs and he'll be editing this. So uh, it'll be interesting to, to see what he thinks of this. How do you, how does your, this wasn't in the questions, but I'm curious. How does your mentoring of PhD students and master's students and students in general now, um, how is that influenced by your own path? Yeah, well, I mean, Eric's a good example because he wanted to study Alzheimer's and he was looking at Alzheimer's here in, spring, in the Springfield area of Massachusetts. And we together worked on getting a comparative project where he lived in Puebla, Mexico. And he, it was hard. It was long and it was hard, but he did it. It was an excellent dissertation. And I think he's, he, he can now do anything, <laughs> I think, after, after having done that. Awesome. Well, that's good to yeah. hear. Um, you've got tons of work on, on menopause. Uh, there was a, we recast the podcast that you did several years ago. And as I mentioned, you have the book, but you have a recent paper in AJHB and we want to talk about that. One of the things that we're trying to do here is through public engagement, see, see if uh, highlighting papers uh, does, does anything to, to raise the uh, awareness of, of specific research. So we're actually going to be at some point comparing uh, sort of views of papers that have been highlighted. So I, I like to make a point of drawing attention when there is a paper that, that we can talk about. So this one's called Hand Grip Strength, Standing Balance, and Rapid Foot Tapping in Relation to Menopausal Transition in Campeche, Mexico. Now, when you read that title, it seems, now I read the article and it makes complete sense, but when you read the title, it seems like a bizarre set of methods to associate with <laughs> menopause. So I wonder if you could talk about, uh, first, before we go into the um, the, the Mayan and non-Mayan women that you that you worked with and talking about the, the culture there. I'm curious about the approach to the study and why why those um, why those tasks? What do they have to do with menopause? Yeah. Well I'm very I'm very lucky here at UMass Amherst that when when I first came here 30 years ago, I was pretty much the only menopause researcher that I knew. And now we have a menopause research group that mm. meets monthly. And it's from people from kinesiology and public health and biology and all over. And one of the people that I've worked with is Jane Kent from kinesiology. And it was Jane Kent who suggested, well, why don't you look at some of these measures whenever you're looking at 
at menopause because we were already doing heights and weights and waist girth and skin folds and all of those sorts of things. And maybe we had already decided on grip strength because a lot of studies had already shown that grip strength went down through the menopause transition. Mm -hmm. But it was Jane who said, well, why don't you look at balance and why don't you do this foot tapping? And the foot tapping is actually one of her measures that she developed, but it had never been tested outside of the United States. And she had never worked with populations outside of the United States. So this was an opportunity for her to collaborate with an anthropologist, and it was an opportunity for me to collaborate with a kinesiologist and and, and that's how we pulled together those measures. I really love discovering new methods from other disciplines that we can use. Mm -hmm. And hand grip strength is one. I never, I, I picked it up through evolutionary psychology, but I, I found the folks here on campus in kinesiology do, use it all the time. And when I needed yeah. hand grip, uh, when I needed the dynam, not, when my, dy I always say this wrong, my dynanomometer, dynamometer. <laughs> Dynamometer. Yeah. Dynamometer. There you go. <laughs> when it broke, I went, I didn't want to buy one, and they had so many over there. I, I went over there and found they have all kinds of fun toys for the kinds of stuff that we research. Right. But before we, we go down that rabbit hole, I, I, I want to hear about the people, the people that you work with. So can you tell us a little bit about this field site and, and the community and the women that, that the study was focused on? Yeah. So the reason that I'm working there is because I presented a talk uh, in Mexico. It was about our work in Hawaii, actually, where we showed that even though the Japanese said that they didn't have hot flashes, when we looked at the physiology measure, the objective measure, they looked just like their non-Japanese neighbors. Mm. So I was presenting this in Mexico, and one of the Mexican anthropologists, uh, Dr. Vargas, said, oh, you must repeat this study among the Maya, because there had been a lot of work actually among the Maya suggesting, hey, <laughs> suggesting that they didn't have hot flashes. Work by Yawabdar Bayane and, and some other people. Dr. Vargas actually put my hand in the hand of Laura Huicochea and said, you two need to work together because Laura Huicochea had been working with these Maya communities for years. We just sat down and wrote an NSF proposal. And after a, a couple of tries, we got funded. So we were comparing women in the city of Campeche, which is a city of about 200,000 people. And Campeche is in the peninsula of Yucatan, but it's the state that people don't visit. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Say, I've, been to, I've been to Merida, I've been yeah. to Playa del Carmen, uh, yeah. Tulum. I don't know where Campeche is. Yeah, it is. It's a little further in inland mm. than uh, Campeche or Merida. Mm -hmm. I mean, than Cancun or Merida. So uh, we were looking at the women on the in the city, and then we were looking at women about an hour away by bus so they could still access the city resources, but they were very rural. And then we were looking at women who were very rural, very isolated in southern Hopolchen, the municipality of Hopolchen, and they were Maya, and also women in the municipality of Kalakmul, 
And those women are not Maya. And that is because the Maya do not live in that part of Kalakmul because they don't have potable water. So the land was just given away to non-Maya people from the other states of Mexico. So we had this comparison of four different communities where we could look at their age at menopause and we found significant differences. We could look at their ethnicity and symptom experience. We could look at these measures of grip strength and balance and so on. But what was really good about our study, I think, is that we could separate urban and rural from Maya and non-Maya because we had rural Maya, rural non-Maya, and urban Maya, and urban non-Maya. So we could ask, what is more important, ethnicity or urban rural residents? Okay, so let me let me just back up a second because the, the 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 findings about Japanese women in Hilo um, mm-hmm. or in Hawaii, I assume I saw I know that um, Dan Brown is in Hilo in the university there, so I'm assuming. I yep. know from having worked in Hawaii this past summer that there's a huge Japanese population in Hawaii, and I also remember my own readings years ago that there are differences around the Pacific in reports related to, to menstruation and menopause. There are where at one point claims that maybe the eating less meat or more soy may influence how women experience menopause. But you're saying in Japan, where of course the diet may not be exactly the same as, as, as in the Western part, are claiming not to have hot flashes, but physiologically you're seeing the same same thing. So what what are you predicting or what is it that you're looking for to be different? What did you expect to find among the Mayan and non-Mayan based on those reports? Yeah, well, I'll go back to those reports just a little bit. And yes, Dan Brown has been my collaborator for four different projects. So all of this work in Hilo, Hawaii was was Dan Brown's NIH grant. So I should have said that when I said we. That was all Dan Brown. And then Dan was also on this project in um, with the Maya and with Laura Huicochea. So Dan is like everywhere <laughs> in my world. So with the Japanese... It makes a difference what word you use to describe hot flashes. And this is Melissa Melby's work, that if you use a different word, you can change the frequency of hot flashes dramatically. Then others, Melissa Melby and others, have shown that since Margaret Locke did her seminal work in the mid-1980s, that there's been a medicalization of menopause And so more and more women are becoming aware or became aware of hot flashes. So by the mid-90s and late 90s, the frequency of hot flashes did go up. So all of those things play into it. But what Dan and I couldn't figure out was, is it because women don't feel the hot flashes that they say, oh, I don't have hot flashes? Or is it because they don't label the sensation as hot flashes? Or is it because it's not appropriate to report the hot flashes? And But we hadn't designed the study to test any of those ideas. So when we went to Campeche, 
we designed a study that allowed us to test those things a little bit better. And one of the things that we learned in Campeche is that right away we learned they don't use the word bochorno to describe a hot flash like they do in Puebla and many other parts of Mexico. Bochorno is it's a very Mexican way of describing a hot flash because it relates to embarrassment, but it also relates to humidity. Like taxi drivers will say, oh, es bochonoso, that this is a really humid, sticky day. But in Campeche, they just use the word calor, which means heat. And it's the word that they use for fever. It's a use, word that they use for ambient temperature. It's a word that they use for hot flashes. And so when we put the hot flash monitor on them and we ask them to push the buttons so that we can look at the concordance, we found a very low concordance. And we went back to these women and we said to the women, why aren't you pushing the buttons? Because <laughs> we train them to push the buttons. We go through this whole thing about the buttons. And everybody said, well, I wasn't sure if it was a hot flash or if I was just hot. And so if we had listened to the word, we would have, we would have known that. We would have known that it's hard for them to differentiate at the moment. They know they have hot flashes, but at the moment, they couldn't differentiate from the ambient heat and their hot flashes. I now look at comparisons of hot flashes across many countries, and I've done this. I, I mean, I have lots of comparisons, but I now question whether they even mean anything if they're done from surveys because of this filtering of culture of whether or not they identify it, they label it, or they report it. That is so much. And climate of how do they differentiate the hot flash from the climate. So a lot of our listeners are grad students, maybe mm -hmm. haven't experienced a hot flash yet, probably. Mm -hmm. What is the physiological underpinning of what we're calling a hot flash? Well, it happens in the context of the removal of a steroid hormone. For women at menopause, it's the removal of estradiol, which is the more powerful estrogen circulating in a woman's body. For men, if they go through prostate surgery or prostate problems and you withdraw testosterone, they will have hot flashes that are just as terrible as the hot flashes at menopause. And if a woman is a breast cancer, uh, survivor and taking tamoxifen, that will also cause hot flashes that are just as terrible as the normal, quote, normal hot flashes at menopause. So it's the context is the removal of estrogen. But everybody has their estrogen fall at menopause. It's a human universal. Not everybody has such terrible hot flashes. And we are now tracing it back to the kispeptin neurons that are firing and, and affecting the secretion of GnRH. And the GnRH is affecting LH, and the LH pulses seem to go along with hot flashes, but you don't need LH to have a hot flash, and you can have hot flashes with that, and, and so on. But we're back at least as far as the kispeptin neurons, and there are actually three drugs in development right now that are non-hormonal, that are going to be used for uh, treating at the level of the kispeptin neurons. 
Damn, the human variation that makes it all so complicated but fascinating, right? That's <laughs> Kara, where you hey! from? <laughs> I came out of the ether. Thank you all so much for letting me join in a little bit late. I had a meeting that ran till 3.15 that luckily uh. ended slightly early, but not early enough to get here right at the start. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this for maybe different reasons than, than necessarily menopause because of estrogen, because estrogen and like you said, estradiol is this massively pervasive and powerful hormone that people do not respect the mm -hmm. number of things it does in all bodies, regardless mm -hmm. of chromosomes or whatever you have. Estrogen affects every single system of everybody's body. And so I'm really curious what you found. And I'm going to I'm going to dig into the weeds after I get you to answer this question about physical activity and estrogen. But what did you find between you know menopause and changes in performance based on the grip strength balance and the, the, the tapping? Well, I think a lot of studies have shown that the grip strength goes down from premenopause to perimenopause to postmenopause stages. And we showed that too. However, when we controlled for age, the relationship with menopause went away. And so estradiol, even though there are, like you said, estradiol is everywhere and there are receptors for estradiol in the muscle, you know, and we know that there are receptors in the bone. And there are receptors in the vagina and in the breast and every, everywhere in the, in the brain. That's right. Everywhere. But we thought that we would see a greater difference with menopausal status, but we didn't. And the same with the foot tapping. We, we thought we might see a difference. And we did until we controlled for age. Uh, so my interesting question with this is, as I've been I've been diving into the world of estrogen, particularly in terms of athletic performance, and it seems that estrogen is actually incredibly important for aerobic, long endurance exercise. And so I'm wondering, and especially we see females tend to actually have more estrogen receptors on their muscles, and this is actually really helpful for fat metabolism, which is super helpful for delaying fatigue and long endurance, so on and so forth. And so there's a part of me that wonders if maybe we need to somehow find a good, safe way to be testing endurance activities in pre-, peri-, and post-menopausal individuals because of the impact estrogen has on those particular activities. I, I think I would have trouble doing that only because I, I tend to work with community populations who are not fit. <laughs> they are not active and they're, and they're not fit. You know, my, the average BMI in my, my quote, my populations is oh, 28, uh, 31 in Qatar, Linda Gerber and I have been using a data set that she collected with 800 women where the average BMI was 34. So I think it's, it's hard to look at endurance activities in, in this population. But my friend Sarah Witkowski at Smith College is asking some of those questions. She's looking at fitness. She's looking at, at endothelial health. And she's trying to understand if, if, for example, hot flashes actually have a deleterious effect on our blood vessels. But she's very interested in the effect of estrogen in relation to fitness and physical activity. So I want to, if I can, dig back into the these methods a little bit because they're so 
easy to use, right? Yes. This is, to me, this is one of the, the coolest things about studies like this, where this is a kind of method that any student, anyone could employ, right? One is hand grip strength, which we already talked about, the dynamometer, those are not, you know, we, we've all seen those. And they tell us something about the upper body musculoskeletal strength and neurocompetence. Um, balance is clear. They're standing on one foot, one foot with eye closed. That's really fascinating. I never thought about doing something like that. But the third one, foot tap, tapping your foot as many times as you can for 10 seconds. And I, I want to preface this by saying I have a, a, a method in one of my studies that is supposed to be a measure of hypnotizability, and it's just rolling your eyes up and then looking huh. at the amount of sclera. To me, it's the weirdest metric of something. And I it takes me a lot to explain the connection between the metric and what I'm studying. So I wonder when you guys do this research and you're explaining this to Mayan and non-Mayan women, like we want to understand your menstruation. So can you tap your foot for 10 seconds, how that conversation happens and how you explain the relationship? We, I think we make it fun. They think we're kind of nutty to do this, but we, you know, we, when we have them do the grip strength, we're like shouting as hard as you can, you know, where thing, where thing, and we kind of make it fun and, they, and a little competitive and, and so on. And with the foot tapping, it's, it is, it's hard. And if you time yourself and try to tap, keep your heel on the ground and tap your toe and see how many times you can do it. You know, you're, you go along thinking, oh, this is easy, this is easy, and you start to get to about 20, and it starts to get hard. Doing it right and, now. Yeah, yeah. And can't keep my heel down. And so I think that it becomes a, almost a game as part of the data collection. And after asking all these personal questions, after doing all of these body measurements and so on, it's fun to have something active to do. One of the things that we learned is we thought that the balance would be more important in the rural communities, but then we saw that there was no difference between rural and urban communities, and we started to look around in the city, and you know, you walk down the city street, and the city streets are full of holes. You know, they're full, they're uneven. You, you got to watch out for the overhangs. You got to, it's just, it isn't as if the city streets are a lot easier to walk on than the unpaved rural roads. So I think everybody needs to maintain a certain level of balance, but maybe they don't need to maintain balance at the same level as they do grip strength because they're using grip strength when they're making tortillas and when they're washing clothes by hand and when they're using the machete out in their garden, you know, they need grip strength through aging and they may need, you know, this, whatever we're measuring with the toe tapping, which it has to do with strength, but it also has to do with the nerves mm -hmm. because the diseases that, you can die. Well, I don't know that you diagnose, but the, the diseases associated with a drastic decline in that foot tapping are diseases that involve nerve, like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, and so on. So one thing you said that was really important, that you did see a decline in grip strength, but that was far more explained by age than anything else. 
-hmm. And when you look at, you know, several studies on aging and physical performance, and we often see that decline in strength and muscle mass, and it's at least within, you know, a, a Western population, that decline in strength is due to a decline in activity leading to an atrophy of muscle and then muscle loss, so on and so forth. And so you were just describing what, like, why these individuals need grip strength. But do you see a decline in those activities with age as well that would then lead to a decline in grip strength? Or are we actually talking about muscle loss in and of itself related to aging and not changes in activity? I don't think we have parsed the data that way to see, I mean, we have looked at it in relation to menopause status to see if there's a change in activity over, over menopause status, but I don't think we've looked at it in relation to age. So I would, I'll have to do that and get back to you on that. Well, there's another paper right there. That's right. (laughs) But, but one thing, you know, what it makes me think of is we did a lot of work in Bangladesh And in Bangladesh, as women age, they actually can do less work because their daughters-in-law start to do the work for them. And in Mexico, they don't have that same sort of system. And so I think that women continue kind of hold together the family by being the provider, by having the gardens, by washing the clothes, by... Yeah, making the tortillas, certainly, that is their domain. I think that is unrelated to age. The findings were were mixed, yeah? Essentially, sort of like the gloss, but is there a take-home for the women that you worked with, something that uh, you found that they they should know, maybe changing their physical activity? Are there ways to address any, any of the issues that you found, or is there a physiological link with any of these things to menopause that are irremediable because of age? Well, I think that what Kara is saying is um, it's really good advice about staying active. And I think that is something that we're, we're not very good at in the, in the uh, certainly in the populations that I work with in the United States or in Mexico or Bangladesh or actually anywhere I've worked, we're not that good at staying active. And I think that that's critical for maintaining balance because when you think about how important it is to not break a hip and the decline in bone mineral density is so rapid at menopause. And then that decline sort of slows down a little bit, but that year around menopause is so critical for bone loss. And if we could just stay active, more active, I think that that would be part of the take home. Everyone should lift weights. Yeah. <laughs> it's always yeah. my take home message. Have you and Rick Bribieskis talked about the parallels of men and women as they age? Because I, as you described the hot flashes, I'm like, okay, I have that, but no, probably not as bad as you're making that sound. I wonder, are there take-homes for men in this as well? Well, I think the way Rick and I have, have talked about it in part is that men are so idiosyncratic compared to women and that men don't have a universal menopause the way women do. And you can't even look across cultures and say that testosterone declines in every population because it doesn't. But you can say that estradiol declines in every population of women who are not taking hormone therapy. And in Campeche, only 6% of the women we spoke with were taking hormone therapy. And interestingly, it was in the rural communities 
that were a health, a very ambitious health promoter <laughs> was getting women to take this hormone therapy. Yeah, it's fascinating. The more I learn about estrogen, the more I'm like, why did people not teach me this stuff in school? No one ever talks about estrogen. That is great. But I'm going to change the topic a little bit, although it might well be related uh, because this is something where you and I are starting to overlap more and more because I know you've been interested in brown adipose tissue, which we've now talked about on the show numerous times with various folks. And so could you tell us a little bit about that work and how you got into it and what kind of questions you're asking? Well, we were doing a study where we were uh, having women spit into a test tube and, and looking to see if their cortisol levels were different, whether they were symptomatic or for hot flashes or not. And that was sort of a wash because the answer is uh, no. <laughs> there was like, there was no difference in the cortisol levels. But while doing that study, I had women say to me, how can I be hot and cold at the same time? And they were going to their kids' hockey games, and they were going to stand by an ice skating rink, and, and they were they were hot and cold at the same time. And so Dan Brown and I were talking about this, and he said, well, maybe their brown adipose tissue is being activated by the coolness, and that that is enough to trigger a hot flash. So we developed this hypothesis that those women with more brown adipose activity would have would be more likely to have hot flashes during the study period. And we're looking at questionnaires and we're putting a hot flash monitor on to look at the objective measure of a hot flash. What's a hot flash monitor? Oh, it's this little box. It's from, I use the one from Biolog. And it has two leads that go to uh, two electrodes that go on the upper chest. In this study, we only use the electrodes on the upper chest. And so the electricity goes from one to the other. And when you have a hot flash, you often sweat on the upper chest. So, and I'll just, in terms of human variation, I'll say that one of the things I learned early on in working in Puebla, Mexico, was that I was not seeing a hot flash on a polygraph and women were saying, I'm having a hot flash. And I'm saying to them, are you sure you're having a hot flash? And they're saying, yes, I'm having a hot flash. And then I, what I learned is when I, now I give women a picture and I say circle on this woman's body, on this picture, circle where you feel the hot flashes. And what I learned in Mexico is that they were more likely to circle the back of the neck. So we started to put electrodes on the chest and the back of the neck. And when I asked women to circle things in Bangladesh, they circled the top of the head. And when you ask them to describe a hot flash, they will say things like, it's a feeling of smoke coming from the top of my head. And we were, we just felt so dumb because women had been saying to us, well, what is a hot flash? And we had been pointing to our center of our chest and saying, oh, so, you know, it starts in your chest and it goes up the neck and up to your face. But that doesn't, isn't what it felt like in Bangladesh. So there is this population variation in how people sweat. And we knew that from the 1960s and the 1970s when men studied men and their sweating. But we didn't apply that knowledge to menopausal women, that they also sweat differently. 
And so that's one of the things that we've learned from this work. Really awesome. And I also just looked up the electrodes, which are pretty cool. So the moment you say that, like, I need to see what this thing is and can it be co-opted for something else? <laughs> it's always the yeah. What's next for you? Uh, what are, what are the, the things on the horizon that have you excited? You know, I've been doing this now for over 30 years and I have data from Mexico, from Paraguay, from Slovenia, from Bangladesh, from Hawaii with Dan, from all, all over. And so I'm starting to merge the data sets and I want to leave behind this publicly available data set that merges low and middle income countries as well as high income countries because there are other data sets out there. There are big merged data sets out there, but they're almost all high income countries. So I think it's going to be really important to put all of these together. So that's one of the things I'm working on. And I'm also working with Carla Obermeyer. I'm working on a history of the North American Menopause Society because we are interested in how the advice about hormone therapy follows this pendulum up and down and back and forth. And we're looking just at the first 20 years. And that includes the Women's Health Initiative fiasco and just the response of the OBGYNs whenever it was shown for sure that hormone therapy causes breast cancer which we knew from all these observational studies, and they are still arguing against it. They are still fighting it. It's just fascinating to me what, how important hormone therapy is to some people in the medical profession. And as an anthropologist, I've been keeping notes on these meetings since 1989. So I'm going th through these notes as a, you know, a participant observation, really, of this society. So I have a, I have another question just based on sort of how you've been describing your, your career. And because at uh, AAA recently, I went out to dinner with a few people we both, we all know, and they were talking about offboarding their career. And mm -hmm. it sounds a little bit, you, you mentioned I'll retire soon. And we, we, don't, we don't want you to, but we know that everybody has a culmination of their career. And so it sort of sounds like, you're in the you're in the midst of some sort of offboarding process. I don't want to raise any red flags for anybody listening, but I'm I'm just curious about you know we we often interview people at the beginning of their career and help them and, and share that advice, but I never hear anything about uh, this was the first experience I ever had about people talking about how to include or pass on lifelong projects that they've been involved in. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that if you if you if you don't mind. No, no, I don't mind. I, I mean, it's been an interesting exercise because the way the retirement system works in Massachusetts, it gives me an end point. It gives me a deadline. So I'm looking at this deadline and I'm working back from the deadline and I'm saying, what do I want to accomplish? So I have three, maybe three and a half years. So I'm working, I have three big projects that I want to finish in these next three, three and a half years. I also want to get four graduate students finished and, and out of here. And so between the, these four graduate students and these three big projects, I, I feel really kind of happy. I'm happy to have a deadline. 
I'm happy to to see an, an end coming. I don't. I'm not going to be one of those people who works until they're eighty. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I know. I know that there are, there's a sort of a, I don't know. There's a pride in doing that that I will miss out on, and that's okay. I feel okay. When I left nursing, I just gave away my white shoes. You know, I gave away my white uniforms. This is you know back in the day when we all wore white. I just gave it all away and I stopped, and I did something else. And I I'm ready. I think for another career another beginning in in an you know in, in the intro i forgot to mention that you had been editor for a stretch of the american journal of human bio and and you successfully passed that on to bill so i see that that you and, and from describing your nursing career you have experience with this before so it's a model to follow but i also wanted to throw throw that feather into your cap that i forgot to mention. I could talk to you all day, but none of us, unfortunately, we all have to get back to other stuff. So I'm going to let Kara ask you our last question. Thanks, Chris. Because you are looking towards retirement, perhaps you are looking at expanding some hobbies and fun things that you do now in your in your spare time. So <laughs> what are the fun things that you do that complete you? Well, and, and I shouldn't talk about retirement because I'm not, I'm not dead yet, um, you know, but, but. You don't need um, to be dead to retire. I think the hope <laughs> is to enjoy retirement, not about right. death. <laughs> right. Um, in April this year, this, I, I got fish. And I, I know some people, like most people, many people grow up with fish, like they, everybody has a goldfish or whatever growing up. And I missed that phase. And so I got a fish in a fish bowl, and then I it, I graduated to a five-gallon tank, and now I have a 10-gallon tank, and I am having so much fun <laughs> with my fish. I had no idea that fish had so much personality. I had no idea that they that they like schedules, that they I just I'm just having a ball with my fish. And I know that that is, I cannot build a retirement on fish, but I just am having I so much I do not see why fun. not, Lynette. <laughs> <laughs> I think you absolutely can build a retirement on fish. Why not? And you are so right about them having different personalities. Oh, yeah. True. If we can hoard cats and dogs, we can hoard fish. So no. Yeah, thanks. Right? <laughs> I mean, I'm all for it. We once had, what was it? It's called a yo-yo loach. And that thing oh, yeah. was a psychopath. It went around and it killed our angelfish by like eating Ooh. through its eyes to the other side. Sorry, gory story. Yeah. But when you say like <laughs> each fish has a personality, we, we got the serial killer of the yo-yo loaches in that tank that day. <laughs> oh, I had that fish too. It was a fire throat cichlid and it started off this big. And after it killed and devoured three angelfish and everything else, snails, everything, it was this big, and we would forget to fill the water, and the water oh my would gosh. be here, oh, and it no. was like, oh, I'm you. <laughs> we, we named it Tough. And it might. Well, so again, if it's all new to you, you have a whole world yeah. to explore. You're going to dive into tropical yeah. fish next and need to get a water heater and lighting and all this fun stuff, and they'll do live water. plants in your fish tank, salt yeah. water. It's a, there's a lot to explore. Don't limit yourself. <laughs> I'll have a little cubicle that looks like you're in the fish tank. Yeah, I would, would be an love aquarium that. in your house. Yeah, that sounds good. I would love this. <laughs>
You need to start that business, Chris, because that would take off. What? <laughs> anyway, Lynette, it's been an absolute delight talking with you as it always is. It's wonderful always. to see you. And hopefully we'll see you in Reno. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. All right. Well, well thank you, you so much for the opportunity. Uh, yeah. Good to see you. Thanks. I just want to finish up by saying thanks for listening to the Sausage of Science. You can find me on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y. Uh, the Human Biology Association is Humbio Associates on Twitter. Thank you, everyone. Bye.